0: morning I have to uh, I have to say that I was so proud I guess in a good way um, during this whole discussion with the men the other night um, because it was just really fun to sit back and I didn't say a whole lot just kind of let the discussion go and let them talk and how this whole thing sort of went from you know the need to be more involved and then from the community and then it kind of just naturally flowed back into taking care of our own family. And I just thought that was so wonderful that all of those things were considered in this discussion. And I just want to reiterate what Clyde was saying. We're we're very serious about this. And so don't be too proud to say I've got a room that I just really need to get painted and I don't, I can't do it myself or something along those lines, um, you know this group it wants to try and, and, and sort of live out what you see in the book of Acts, which is this this church in community with one another, helping each other out and doing things for one another and you're sort of pooling resources. And so this is one way we think we can do that. So please uh, do not hesitate to take advantage of that as Clyde has already uh, done. It was just so wonderful to see him step up and. Um, you know, launch into the breach, so to speak, with this r- risky venture of getting the rest of the men to help him paint his house. <laughs> Chris has <more> things too. <laughs> so since you now know Chris has more things, if you have something, you may want to go ahead and get it on the board before. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for, uh, for today and for this body and for uh, its willingness to serve one another. And so I just pray that the words that I speak today would be words that are pleasing to you, words that edify you, <laughs> words that encourage us. Thank you for your eternal word and for Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. So we've been starting—at least we're two weeks into a journey through the Book of Revelation—and uh, just to what I'm trying to do each week is just to give you a recap of where we were before, so that it sort of allows some continuity. And um, so the big idea for last week was this—that was John's. This was still kind of part of the prologue of the book. Uh, It was John's greeting from the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, uh, which just results in this praise to God in anticipation of of Jesus coming back. And it was also a very powerful reminder of the fact that God is in control of things, right? And so there were several things that, uh, you know, we could look at, sort of the insights we tried to pull out of this. Um, first of all was that salvation is not just what God saves us from, but also what God saves us for, right? There's something that we're supposed to be doing in between the time we get saved and the time that um, one end or another comes, either the end of the world or the end of us. Secondly, that, um, that this God, who is the sovereign ruler of the entire universe, is also present with us personally. And I mean, that's pretty amazing. when You really stop and think about that. And then finally, the idea that that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus is coming again, and and what that kind of allows us to uh, think and how that alters our worldview in many respects. So that was last week. So now we're going to move forward and we're going to look at the remainder of chapter one, which is verses nine through twenty, okay, and then next week we will begin to get into the letters to the churches. So this is the end of uh, of chapter one, and so to kind of put this in context, you know, John has given us this majestic description of of this triune God in the uh, in the first eight verses, and so now we're kind of transitioning into uh, John's real-time situation as he is there on this island uh, uh, called Patmos. And uh, there probably is no passage in all of the New Testament that glorifies Jesus more than John's vision of this resident and glorified Christ. Um, and as I looked for pictures, this one I just, just kind of intrigued me because it's sort of a combination of all the elements you know, from Revelation. I just thought it was kind of a cool picture. Um, But that's what John is describing. This is, you know, at least in some sense, something like what he might have seen. Uh, And so this first section of the verse, the verses that we'll look at, 9 and 11, sort of gives us the worship setting of this vision, and it gives us John's commission to go ahead and to write this. And then the actual vision begins in verses 12 through 16, where we... uh, He uses words that are coming largely from the Old Testament, from Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah to describe Jesus and all of his power and his glory. Um, And, you know, while these individual images will certainly depict aspects of Christ's character, you know, the idea that blazing eyes might indicate penetrating vision, for example you were looking at a, at a commentary, you might see that. If you take the whole vision in, in its entirety, what you're really looking at is, is really a verbal icon. It's like a verbal picture of um, what Jesus is, and it's really meant to be seen as a whole, right? So we don't want to spend a ton of time looking at the individual elements, but really kind of focusing on what this whole thing looked like. And then finally, in 17 through 20, we have John's reaction to the vision. We have Jesus' reassurance to John. And then an important interpretation of two key images that show up right here at the very beginning of this vision. Um, And so Jesus really begins speaking in verse uh, 17 of this chapter. And uh, he doesn't really finish with what he's saying until chapter 3, almost the end of chapter 3. Uh, and so it sort of links this vision that John's having in the first chapter with these, this message to the churches that we're going to get into starting next week that, contain, that make up chapters 2 and 3. Okay? So let's look at the text itself. If you have a Bible, you'd like to follow along. Otherwise, we'll show it up here. This is chapter 1 of Revelation, starting in Verse 9. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around. Is that the next one? Yeah. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So that's the remainder of chapter one of Revelation. So now as we've been doing, let's kind of break this down a little bit and look at each one of these um, individually. And so first of all, we have... The first part of verse 9, which uh, kind of is John setting the stage. This is, he, is, uh, he refers to himself as being his reader's brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. And so what John's doing here is he's trying to connect with his audience. You know, that's what any good author or speaker in particular would do and he's doing it not on the basis of his positional authority he's not coming you know forward and saying i john the apostle right he's really putting this on the basis of a shared experience that you know these the people that he is writing with have had some of these things too and so he's struggling right alongside of his listeners in the in the trenches of faith as a follower of jesus Um, He's their brother, and he's their partner in three different realities that he brings out here. The first is suffering or tribulation. The second is participation in the kingdom. And then finally, endurance. So he's highlighting those three things through this this part of the verse. And so in Jesus, believers share not only in the privileges of Christ's kingdom but also in the harsh realities of persevering through trials in a hostile world. John was banished to Patmos because of his faithfulness to Jesus and the gospel. And that was most likely because the Roman authorities viewed him as some kind of a political threat. Uh, And so they sent him away in the hopes of uh, hindering the church's influence in Asia Minor, where John was... uh, was preaching. All right, so moving on. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. Now, probably know that the early Christians designated Sunday, the first day of the week, as the Lord's day, and it was chosen as a day of worship because it was the day that Jesus was resurrected. Okay? And so John is said to be in the Spirit, and this, this phrase, in the Spirit, occurs four different times in the book of Revelation, and on each occasion when he says that, he's receiving some sort of a a, a heavenly vision. And it's very much uh, reminiscent of prophetic visions and encounters that we find in the Old Testament, right? Um, And I I really think this, this whole expression has got this idea of being in the Spirit. It's got nothing to do with his attitude. It's got nothing to do with that he's feeling really good that day. Uh, or if he's feeling really holy, uh, if, you know, in particular. Nothing to do with his frame of mind. I think what it's referring to is a definite experience that he's having. Right? Because, like I said, it occurs four different times. And y- if you really look at this, this is technical prophetic language. Right? It's referring to this idea that he is the author of this, um, of this revelation, and he's receiving this. He's basically saying that I've been admitted to the heavenly council chamber. And this is what I'm seeing. And then he says, "I (coughs) I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And so... This whole vision begins as he's hearing this voice that sounds like a trumpet. Uh, and if you can just kind of imagine, gosh, I should have had, uh, you don't play the trumpet too, do you? Uh, unfortunately not. <laughs> okay, well, if you've ever heard, you know, just a trumpet blast, it's loud and it carries, and of course they used them in battle. Um, and so it, it's really somewhat symbolic, perhaps, of the clarity and the power that Jesus' voice conveyed when he spoke. Um, and it also appears in other New Testament, um, anytime you're kind of talking about end times, this idea of trumpet, trumpets seems to accompany it. So we see that a lot. And uh, in the voice, and we just we believe that it's Jesus speaking because of what John says he sees next, instructs John to write this vision on a scroll and to send it to these other churches, okay? So he says, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now, what's interesting is that John turns to see the voice, right? And this actually... It seems like a minor detail, but this pattern is repeated throughout at various times throughout the book of Revelation, this idea that he hears something first and then he sees it afterwards. and uh, And so in the instances in which it's used in revelation, what he's really telling us is that the verbal revelation is necessary in order to understand the visual revelation, right so you have to have both pieces of that in, in this. And so what he sees is are seven golden lampstands. And later, of course, Jesus tells him that these are these are to be identified as the seven churches. But he also sees something else. He sees someone like a son of man. And it's like we, like we talked about last week. This is coming right out of Daniel. This is exactly how Daniel uh, was describing a vision that he saw. Um, and this whole idea of the lampstand as a symbol of the church comes from Zechariah's vision of a faithful Israel. Uh, and he, see, he saw Israel like a menorah. You know what a menorah is? Jewish sort of candlestick or candelabra almost with um, I think it's seven candles that are, uh, are held in it. Um, and so what he's sort of confirming here is that he's, the, the church's role of reflecting God's presence in a hostile world, right? They're lampstands. They shine this light in the darkness. And as I said, he, he sees Jesus. And he portrays him as someone like a son of man. <clears throat> and if you read in Daniel 7 and again in Daniel 10, you see that mentioned numerous times. And it sort of links him to the Father in the sense that Daniel also refers to the Father as the Ancient of Days. So you have these two concepts coming together here. Um, And these descriptions are going to appear again. In each one of the letters to the seven churches, part of the description of Jesus will reappear. So we'll see that as we go on. And then we, we find this section. This one who is like a son of man is dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Well, I think, first of all, the robe and the sash are kind of reminders that that was the official dress of the high priest, okay? And the, the clothing was supposed to be uh, a representation of this glory spirit or this image of, uh, of God, it's God himself. And so that's that part. Then we have the whiteness of his head and his hair, the flaming fire from his eyes, his feet, you know, like glowing bronze. And this all sort of makes the point that Christ is showing up in this as this flashing, brilliant blaze of glory. And I would note here that it does say that white hair is glorious, <laughs> in contrast to our perpetual youth culture that wants to get rid of it. So remember that, all you we're glorious so the conclusion that you should come to in looking at all of this should be pretty obvious this resurrected transfigured Jesus is the incarnate glory of God this is what the glory of God looks like if you put it into human or what looks like human form I just think that's so awesome and John did too (laughs) Because his reaction was, he just fell at his feet as if he was dead. He's like, oh, I can't deal with this. Boom, down he goes. <clears throat> now, this is somewhat, this is also somewhat similar to Daniel. In chapters 8 and 10, where there's this, this heavenly vision, there's a falling down in fear, right? I don't know what this is, but I don't think I want to know, you know. So I'm going to go get as low as I can. <laughs> um then there's a strengthening <coughs> by a heavenly being, and then finally there's some additional instruction that comes. So there's a pattern here too. Um, and it's, it's certainly not his own sin that's putting John on his face here. It's just simply this vision that he sees. You know, this is unlike anything that he has ever seen before or any of us have ever seen before. Um, and it puts John on his face. And it's the glory of God. But Jesus doesn't leave him on the ground. He says, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Hades. So Jesus now is placing his hand of power and protection. This is the same hand that holds the seven stars. He's placing it on John. And so we know that the one who sustains the churches is himself a giver of life to each one of us. And what's sort of interesting here is that um, the empire, the Roman Empire, is the one who claims to have all authority and to possess the power over life and death and over the, over the grave. But instead, what Jesus is saying here is like it, me, not the state, not the emperor, not Satan, not even the ruler of the synagogue, I have command over all reality. I am the Lord of life and death and all of history, and all of eternity as well. And so it's in these terms that he is commanding John, the the terms of his complete dominion over everything, that he is commissioning John to write this book, um, which very clearly and unequivocally sets forth the truth of his eternal and comprehensive government. And then Jesus speaks some words of encouragement to John. He just says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And so there are some interpreters that see this, verse 19, and they'll they'll say, Well, it's a chronological outline of the whole book of Revelation. Because what you have seen is sort of equated to this vision that John is in, in the midst of. What is now is the church age that they're in and what will take place later is equal to the future tribulation period. So some kind of see it laid out like that. But I don't really think that's the case here because if you really look at it, you find future references in Revelation 2 and 3 and you see um, past, present, and future aspects throughout chapters 4 through 22. So, I think the best way to look at this is to see these three clauses as emphasizing how past, present, and future kind of intermingle through this whole book. And it makes its message relevant for all ages, you know, including ours. And then finally, Jesus says, he's going to explain what this mystery is. He says, the mystery is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus is now providing some insight into this mystery or deeper meaning of these two very key symbols in this book, the stars and the lampstands. Uh, And so he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, there are some that will debate what this, what, what angel really means in this particular context. Um, The term angels used throughout Revelation to refer to heavenly beings rather than human beings. Sometimes they're messengers, sometimes they're leaders, and the same really holds true here. Um, They could serve as guardian angels of the church or as um, personifications of the actual spirit or character of the church itself, sort of heavenly counterpoints to the earthly reality. Um, I don't know. It's it's not really clear. But we do know that the angels identify with the churches and they serve them and they represent God to them and represent them before God. Now what's sort of, what I find interesting about the use of this the seven stars is that it was quite well known in the first century. This was not something that John just sort of came up with. Uh, says I found a, a place where it said that the seven stars appeared regularly on the emperor's coins as symbols of his supreme political sovereignty. And so at least some of the early readers of Revelation would have gasped in amazement at the audacity that John had to put these seven stars in the hands of Jesus because the Roman emperors had kind of appropriated that imagery to themselves. (coughs) But it's a symbol of dominion that the Bible reserves for God alone. And John is essentially saying, Jesus has come to take it back. The seven stars and everything else and all of creation belongs to him. And the seven lampstands, as we've said, are just the seven churches that are mentioned, were mentioned earlier in the book. Uh, they're the intended recipients of the letter that's going to come as a result of this vision. Um, and all of this is sort of under the sovereign protection of God, because he's holding and standing in the midst of all these things. So that's really the <coughs> sort of the insights as far as the, the indi- individual verses. I'd like to transition now and to look at a little bit more application, um, but before that, just one one quick point, and that is th- to a lot of people who read and interpret the Book of Revelation, um, the the fact that John uses this symbolic style, and that there is clearly this anti-statist content, you know, just like we were just talking about with the you know, the the seven-star symbol as something that had Rome had used, and now he's showing it here. Um, <clears throat> it leads commentators to believe that this, uh, it was because that this was such a politically sensitive topic that he's writing about that that's what determined his use of symbolism in the book, that he wrote revelation in some sort of a secret code. Um, <coughs> in order to hide his message from uh, the Roman bureaucrats that might read it. Now, there might be some truth to this. Um, For example, the use of the number 666 as a reference to Nero uh, has been documented. And that is a code that the Romans would not have been able to, uh, to really decipher. But even if you take that out, it's clearly, the, the whole book is clearly a treasonous document. And it, it wouldn't have taken a genius in the empire to figure that out. I mean, right off the bat in the first chapter, we have the assertion that Jesus Christ is ruler of the kings of the earth. Um, that's pretty much an assault on the emperor's autonomy, right? And the fact that there's symbolism in the book doesn't obscure that whatsoever. It's pretty much right out there in front. Um <clears throat> And so I think the, the way to view this is that the use of symbolism is that Reve- we, we can't lose sight of the fact that revelation is a prophecy, and symbolism is part of prophetic language. Okay? So that's why we see so much symbolism throughout the book, because he's, he's recording a prophetic message. All right, so as far as you know what we can sort of take home out of this, the first thing really is oops. Jesus is divine. I'm not ready for him yet. (laughs) So John's vision portrays Jesus as this glorious ruler and judge. He's dignified, wise, strong, insightful, majestic, powerful, sovereign, and true. And above all, he is one with God. And so this connection between the Ancient of Days and the one like a son of man in Daniel... Along with the titles that are used for both God and Jesus, affirm that Jesus was God, that Jesus is deity, the first and the last. And so, in the midst of all of the cultural confusion about Jesus, the church is really called to proclaim him as the divine human being that he is. The symbolic language that's used here, we, we shouldn't take that literally. You know, it's like Jesus, our risen Lord, has a stick in his mouth. You know, that's it doesn't really make any sense to take it literally. It's communicating Jesus' character and his ability. And so I think we distort the message of Revelation if we try to um, impose or enforce some sort of a literalistic interpretation on picture language for example we would never Jesus is called the Lamb of God but we don't think of Jesus as a sheep right that's a picture that gives us some idea of what he's all about well the same really is true here I think in Revelation and so the interesting thing is that there's an awful lot of people in our culture that sort of mistakenly think that um, people have a problem with Jesus well, they don't. That is, they don't have a problem with the right Jesus. I mean, people really embrace this peace-loving Jesus of Gandhi. That's, that's okay. That Jesus is okay. Or they really, really love this Jesus of self-actualization that uh, is part of Oprah's language, right? We like that Jesus too. And then there was a few years ago, now we can look at the picture, where uh, many people made a fashion statement by sporting a Jesus is my homeboy T-shirt. I think you can still get these if you're interested. See, people love the right Jesus. You know, as long as he fits neatly into our comfort zone and he helps improve our life, Jesus is cool. But John is bringing us face to face with the real Jesus. And he's much more than any of us could ever have imagined that he he is. He is actually God with us. second point is that we're, we're in the best position to hear from God when we are regularly experiencing spirit led worship because if we look at the text that's really when John receives his vision he's in the midst of some sort of spirit guided worship time that he's having on the Lord's day and if you think about it John's first audience is really experiencing hearing this in the same setting because this was read much like we're doing it now in the context of a worship service, all right? And so worship was what prepared John to receive the vision, and worship plays a crucial role throughout the whole book, as we'll see. (coughs) And so the point that I think we take away from this is that corporate worship is not optional. And it's not superfluous. Because genuine discipleship flows out of a heart cleansed and made full in spirit-empowered worship. And so we're best able to hear from God, (coughs) to receive an eternal perspective, and to experience a foretaste of heaven when we make spirit-led worship a priority. Not an option. John Calvin once wrote that a man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. In other words, when we see God, we come to understand ourselves better. It opens the door to repentance, (coughs) to inspiration, and in many cases, to transformation. Third, we feel this tension between living in a difficult place And holding on to God's promise to make all things new. See John's on the Isle of Patmos. And he's there because he's been a faithful witness to Jesus. He was a fellow partner with his listeners. He endured the suffering. And all of those things are a necessary part of membership in God's kingdom. (coughs) We shouldn't try to eliminate you know that um, excuse me <coughs> <coughs> that there is this <coughs> partnership between faithfulness and suffering you know it is true that as the gospel takes hold within our world and as Christians take dominion then tribulation is lessened. But it's absolute folly, thank you, Andre, for Christians to suppose that they are somehow immune from suffering. We must help people adjust their expectations about what the Christian life is really like. You see, too often people expect that becoming a Christian will guarantee material prosperity and prevent hardship. But it's simply not true. We are a new people, but we still live in a fallen world. And so believers need realistic expectations about the difficulties and the promised blessings that are connected with following Jesus. You know, and I'm sure you're aware that over the years, there have been a lot of different methods that have been developed to share the gospel. You know, and each one can have its particular strengths and weaknesses. And there's a popular method that I'm sure you all have heard before that says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Sound familiar? Has anybody heard that? Okay. Okay. Now, if we understand that statement in context, it's perfectly true. But, in our pleasure-seeking, self-oriented culture, such a statement could be understood to mean, come to Jesus and all your dreams will come true. And if that's what people think when they're becoming a Christian, Then they're going to be sorely disappointed. Because what they're doing is confusing a philosophy of self actualization with God's epic plan to glorify his name. That's what it's all about. Jesus promises that his followers are going to suffer. I found this image, which I thought was particularly appropriate. Consider what the founding members of our church underwent. Rejection, stoning, beating, crucifixion, death by sword, and countless other ways. Like I said before, pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs and read that. And um, you'll (laughs) you'll understand better just exactly how tough it was. And then consider what many Christians in the world are facing right now. I mean, unfortunately, we hear all too often of Christians being beheaded. And (coughs) 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 so this... (coughs) And see this all your dreams will come true version of Christianity doesn't have any room for those kinds of experiences. But this Savior who's revealed in revelation is the one who's gone before us on a road of suffering, and who walks with us in the midst of it. And then finally, we receive hope not only from Jesus' promise to return, but also from his presence now among us. Revelation promises God's future intervention into history to judge evil, to resurrect his people, to transform his creation. And while our hope is grounded in this promise, we are also comforted and empowered to endure by Jesus' presence with us now. Because the one who's returning soon is already here. And so Jesus commissions John to write to the churches even as he walks among the churches and holds them in his hand. And this truth is an opportunity for us to really communicate how we can experience God's presence now in deeper ways. Through the Holy Spirit, through Christian community, through his word. In his book, Where is God... When It Hurts, <clears throat> Philip Yancey shares a letter that he received from a woman whose husband died after a long and painful struggle with ALS, which is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And it read in part, <clears throat> ever since the first symptoms of ALS appeared over eight years ago, you have surrounded us with love and support. Now she's writing this letter on the fir- first anniversary of her husband's death, and she's writing the letter back to her church, okay. You have cheered us with innumerable notes and letters and cards, some hilarious, some profound, some just warm and caring, but all greatly valued. You visited and you phoned often from faraway places. Many of you prepared and brought marvelous food, which nourished our spirits as well as our bodies shopped and ran errands for us and repaired our broken and out of order things while yours waited. You swept and shoveled our walks, brought our mail, dumped our trash. It was possible for us to be part of our church services because you recorded them. And you brought gifts of love, too many to count, to brighten our hours. You doctored and even repaired a tooth right here in our home. You did ingenious things that made life easier for both of us, like the coughing jacket and signal switch that Norm was able to use until the last few days of his life. You shared scripture verses with us, and some of you made it your ministry to pray for those who came to our home regularly to give respiratory treatments. You made him feel like he was still a vital part of the music industry and of the church music ministry. And how you prayed day after day, month after month, even year after year, those prayers buoyed us up, lifted us through particularly hard places, gave us strength that would have been humanly impossible to have, and helped us to reach out on our own for God's resources. Someday we'll understand why Norm's perfect healing did not take place here. But we do know that he was with us much longer and in much better condition than is the norm for an ALS victim. Love is not a strong enough word to tell you how we feel about you. That widow's church family became the presence of God for her and it was because of their loving concern, she wasn't tormented by doubts about whether God loved her or not. She could sense his love in the human touch of the body of Christ, which was her local church. So our takeaway point from this section is really this. We see that John is commissioned to write to these seven churches about a vision that was given to him by the risen and glorified Christ. <coughs> the one who has conquered death and now rules over and cares for his church. Hallelujah. Amen.